Welcome to the Gigabyte Weekly Podcast. This week's episode is on the political orientation of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a whole. Enjoy. And we're back. James, welcome back and uh, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. you know, back here on episode eight now. It's crazy. We've done nearly two months of the, of the Gigabyte Weekly. Yeah, and it's been going pretty well. Um, I'd say this one is a bit of a departure. Uh, you know, you said before we were live that you kind of wanted to maybe move a little bit away from just the tech side of things and something more digestible, I guess, for, for average consumers of these things. And, you know, we thought, okay, we've done a lot about James's background. You know, we've looked at more of the economic side of things. And, you know, I've talked a little bit about the tech, but my background comes in politics. That's my where my interest is. It's what I'm studying. So I think we what we said we'd do today was the political orientation of crypto as a whole and kind of trying to break it down both into left and right ways of thinking. And Sam, can I just ask, when you say what's the political orientation of Bitcoin, can you kind of tease us into some ideas that you might be talking about? Okay, yeah. So that's a, that's a good time just to get straight into it then. So we're going to look at both, but I, I said that we'd maybe, we have a good, we've got a good survey here in front of us and we've got a few ways of looking at things. So I guess originally crypto, the, the OGs, in crypto back in 2017 when when everything was on the move it, i would say it was mainly libertarians who were involved in crypto you know they they saw decentralization they saw crypto as a way of taking control away from big government you know so a libertarian is for anyone that doesn't know is kind of a, a, a more right-wing leaning individual they're very popular in america and they advocate against big government you know they want to take power away from the government and put it back in the hands of the people and you know you think maybe that might sound a little bit left-leaning but it's actually not so then we'll i guess we'll talk about the right wing then so decentralization in general could be looked at as a libertarian idea because like i said it's taking power away and it's pretty much allowing for the individual to be controlled and then also the, the likes of the blockchain and decentralization in general can stop censorship and uphold freedom in inverted commas um, so James, does that all make sense so far? So far, so good. Yeah, I think I'm I'm slowly keeping track here. Okay. So before we go any further on like the the left right breakdown of everything, I said we'd look at a survey. So we we got some data from CoinDesk, and it's a, it's a survey on the political leanings of the crypto community. And I think I'll just kind of read this out so you can get a good idea. So there were 1,200 respondents, and it broke down as follows: nine percent socialist, 27 percent liberal. 9% centrist, 21% conservative, 24% libertarian, and 8% anarcho-capitalist. So, you know, it's fairly even, and, and the biggest, of course, there being liberal. Any surprises there for you, James? I mean, when I hear you talking about it, no, not really. I mean, as I come from more of the tech background with crypto, when I think of these crypto companies, I, I more so see the technology backing. And when you're talking about it, you're more looking at kind of the whole political aspect What's the movement behind the crypto? So it's just, it's, I find it interesting to learn about the other side a lot more now, to be honest. Yeah, so basically the breakdown of that, what I would say is there's a slight leaning towards the right, about between 52 and 55% leaning right wing, you know? And obviously right wing across the world means very different things. And the likes of Europe right wing, like conservatism is quite different to the likes of America where it's a little bit more extreme. But that's kind of just the overarching breakdown of what we're going to be looking at. So then economically right just to bring things back to you james mm -hmm. so on the right you look in, in terms of crypto within this space now we look that maybe crypto could be argued to be a proponent of the free market economy instead of socialism so maybe, maybe james would you explain what the free market economy is and you know maybe an example yeah so like 
when you kind of when you ask that question, what I'm thinking is it's an open market where price is determined by by the individuals, not by the hierarchy. And that's really the whole nature of crypto because it's decentralized. There is no hierarchy. No one person, like despite there being influencers, like crypto influencers, no one person actually has enough power to physically to physically wield within the blockchain to make any sizable dent, any sizable movement. So it's really the majority people. Sorry, the majority will always win. And even within that, the, going even more basic, the fact that you can buy, sell, trade, do derivatives on crypto kind of places it within the free market economy. You know, it makes it more inherently capitalist, which again, would make it more right-wing. So then if we look on the left-leaning side of things, so we look at, you know, crypto kind of values neutrality and democracy, right? And like the likes of DeFi or decentralized finance, but I guess it, it, it aims to disrupt banks and demo- democratize money. So James, you come from the tech perspective, as you said, what is DeFi? Yeah, so- so DeFi is really probably my favorite aspect of crypto, crypto currently at the moment. And it's been, it's been an absolute hot topic in this most recent bull market, especially 2021, when we're seeing these DeFi marketplaces, the, the value of their native tokens has just gone through the roof. I mean, it literally, I know they say no one became, became an overnight millionaire, but some people really did in this space. But basically what DeFi does is it decentralizes finance. So it takes financial power away from the big players. So, you know, in this situation, banks and brings it back to the individuals because at the end of the day, the person with the money is the person with the power. So in a, in a centralized financial system, if I have, let's say 10,000 euro in a bank account, you know, I don't have any power over what happens to that, to that 10,000 euro. The bank loans it out. They pay me like, what is it? 0.2% if even, it could even be less than that now as a so-called incentive to keep my money there, which is just, in my opinion, total BS. I mean, you can get a better return in any single market on earth. And yet we're still told, you know, sorry, I'm on a bit of a tangent here, but we're still, you know, told in school, you know, the only way to make money is to save money in bank accounts and all that stuff. But anyway, going back to the topic, the decentralized finance aspect of it is really huge because the kind of the movement now within crypto is is not so much on the tech side, but as Sam, you're talking about on the political side as well. You know, it's almost like sticking your middle finger up to the big banks. The people who screwed over the world economy countless times will continue to do it. Yeah, and so, even I mean, if like governmental transactions, you know, where, so say a government wants to invest in infrastructure, right? And they say, you know, we're going to put 100 million into rows in the west of Ireland, okay? And they're notorious over there. You know, if they put that money on the blockchain, any voter, any individual can go and actually see, okay, is that where the money actually went? Or what are they doing with it? You know, it holds governments accountable. And we'll talk a little bit later about like some macro governmental perspectives on crypto and why maybe some governments wouldn't be in favor because they're held accountable. But talking on the left there and DeFi, and you know, you were saying about disrupting banks, um, I think it's a good point to move over to a little bit more left-leaning. You know, we talked about free market economy and, you know, some of the right-wing leaning uh, economic ideas. Let's look at a bit of Marxism, James. Okay, here we go now. So the Marxist perspective of Bitcoin, for example. So we've got a good quote from Nathaniel Popper, who's the author of the book Digital Gold. It's a very good book. I recommend it. So he says, people who join the Bitcoin network are quite literally both customers and owners of both the bank and the mint. So just as Marx advocates for the workers to become the state, Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, and Bitcoin itself advocates for customers to become the bank. So by cutting out the middleman, 
you don't need to place your trust in any centralized entity. And where that kind of relates more strictly back to Marx is that Marx believed that when capitalism becomes too centralized, it leads to overproduction, and that will eventually lead to chaos. And, you know, whether you, you subscribe to Marx's theories of economics and philosophy, that's up to yourself. But it's worth considering what a left-leaning economist and philosopher would actually say about Bitcoin. And, you know, obviously he wasn't around when it was, so it's just based on his other theories that we can deduce these facts. So I think, you know, we've kind of covered left and right there. And, you know, I know I've been talking a lot, but I'm very passionate about the topic, I'm sure you can tell. So, you know, we've we've seen two examples of why decentralization could be both left and right-leaning. So it kind of leaves me with the assumption that, and it's it's a, it's a boring answer, but decentralization, blockchain, crypto as a whole, is a centrist technology. And as boring of a revelation as that, you know, the right aren't winning, the left aren't winning. And if you're a centrist, no one's winning. You know, you're, you're, you're left in the middle because we've seen decentralization favors both sides. And I think that makes it the perfect egalitarian technology from that perspective, but also political money. You know, political money is, is a concept that is explored more often now. And if it's centrist, I think it's the most fair way of going about it, James. So are, are you keeping up with everything? I'm keeping up. And I actually think what you said there, how it's a centralist technology is really interesting. And I think if anybody out there is like me and might not be, sorry, but they might not know as much about the political side as they wish they would. I think it's it's a fresh idea, really. And if I can just go on a bit of a tangent here as well, I think it's really interesting when you said that uh, those who participate in the Bitcoin network are both the customer and the mint. And it got me thinking as you were saying that, I mean, imagine a situation where a bank lost half its customers. It It's a pretty, it's almost a certainty that in this day and age, when governments are addicted to printing money and bailing out banks, we can imagine a humongous bailout package going to that bank. And it makes you realize like, if the customers left the bank, why is the bank being being financed? Why is it staying open? So I think it just, it, it kind of shows the, the asymmetry of information, uh, sorry, not asymmetry of information, the asymmetry between um, like the customer side and the mint side, if you know what I mean, and how Bitcoin ties ties the individuals into both. Yeah, and that's, that's a pretty good way of putting it. And then, so just kind of finally, I kind of wanted to move on to, if this is a short enough podcast, I just wanted to, want to just rant all of my information and data at everyone. So we're going to look at the macro-governmental perspective, right? And if that bores the absolute arse off anyone by saying that, I apologize. What that basically means is, what do governments think about crypto, right? That's just what I titled the section. So I would say, James, just before we actually go into the facts on it, what would you think the governmental perspective is globally on Bitcoin? I would say it's negative. Globally, the government, the governmental perspective is surely negative. Okay, so I would agree to an extent with you there. So governments, I would say, fear crypto because it lacks a central authority. You know, that's a key fact. We've said decentralization maybe a hundred times this podcast already. But the fact is decentralized means that governments can't control it. Uh, but many countries actually have vastly different approaches to crypto and perspectives on it. So I have kind of a list of pro, pro crypto countries and you know anti crypto countries. And you know I'd say the it's it's pretty clear. Um, you the top of the list would probably be El Salvador in terms of pro. James, do you want to tell us why El Salvador is so pro crypto? Yeah, I mean unless you've been living under a rock, you probably know that El Salvador recently adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. And just another fun fact, everybody, on Thursday, this coming Thursday, so the day after this podcast is released, every single El Salvadorian citizen is going to be airdropped 30 US dollars worth of Bitcoin into their government-issued wallets. Which is actually quite a big deal because, you know, in a lot of these uh, South American and Central American countries, you know, inflation is rampant. So actually having Bitcoin 
is quite a big deal over there. So that that's one country that's pro crypto. And you know, even the US, you know, they're not the, the Bush or any president hasn't ever come out and said crypto's great. Even Trump's actually come out against it. But I don't think he was in office when he said that, so who cares, right? But the U.S. kind of have accepted it through backward entrances, right? So it's accepted by a lot of U.S. companies. So Microsoft, for example, accepted as a payment. And Bitcoin is on the U.S. derivatives market. And agencies actually exist to stop money laundering within crypto. If I can also just uh, point out quickly there, Sam, um, crypto nearly tanked the entire $2 trillion infrastructure bill literally in the fine print and it, this wasn't made aware to basically citizens or senators i think it was two up until two days prior to the voting and this whole crypto bill literally almost prevented the whole thing yeah so like crypto is talked about governmentally in the us and i would say overall it is on the pro crypto side the fact that you can trade it on equity markets over there it's on the derivatives market you know there's agency that are set up you know to specifically monitor it the irs have a specific tax not necessarily for crypto but they have they they count it as its own like it actually counts as property tax over there rather than over here which is capital gains tax but we won't get into the taxes because that is less interesting than politics and then in the eu in 2015 it was ruled that crypto is exempt from vat or vat so you know that is a pro crypto stance in in many ways uh, and then again on, on the you know anti-crypto side we've kind of got the usual offenders you know we've got china so china recently do you know when this was james um they've banned crypto like six times now <laughs> like okay. they keep on coming out saying oh we're banning crypto it's pretty much every year uh, i mean the big one was 20 the big one was 2018 2017 2018 many many look at that as the catalyst for the really bad you know bitcoin winter as it was called but i mean yeah they said it again this year as well okay well i mean they're not great at sticking to their word but today this or this summer right they banned crypto as a whole so that means no mining no payment accepting and no exchanges within China, right? And obviously that's because China are an authoritarian state and they don't they can't control this currency. So they're not gonna like it. They also banned ICOs as well, which is a really big one, you know, f uh, raising money for kind of startups through crypto is completely illegal. So if you're a Chinese citizen, you can't engage in it. If you're a foreign company, you can't seek Chinese investment into it. It's just a it's a no go zone over there. I mean, it's their own problem. They're going to lose out on innovation in a massive field because they they don't want to give up a tiny bit of control of, you know, it's not even autonomy. It's <laughs> they won't be able to monitor their citizens as well. Um, and then even Vietnam actually says, you know, the central bank and the government of Vietnam have come out and said that um, the crypto is an illegitimate payment form. You know, they it's not outright banned to be bought as an investment. But the country's stance is you can't pay for things with it. And, you know, that's kind of a lot of places. I can't go into Centra in Dublin and buy chicken fillet roll with Bitcoin. You know, that's not because the government has decreed that it's not allowed, but it's because it's not quite yet accepted by these these firms and these companies and businesses. And then finally, just on the anti-crypto side, both the, the three, Bolivia, Colombia and Ecuador, have outright banned crypto. Not allowed. You can't invest, you can't trade it, you can't do anything, which I find quite unfortunate for the citizens of these countries because, you know, these are the kind of places that inflation runs rampant and destroys native currencies. And, you know, Bitcoin is actually ironically the fix for that for them. Um, so that's kind of what the macro-governmental stance is. And then, you know, I kind of want to talk about where Ireland comes into this. And James, do you want to tell us a little bit about what the Irish stance on crypto is? Yeah, I mean, the Irish stance on crypto really is you can do it if you want, but the government aren't going to help you if you lose your money. 
that's kind of what the Irish Central Bank of Canton said. I mean, they've put out warnings about the volatility associated with digital assets, uh, but they haven't outright said, no, you're not allowed to trade them, own them, and you're. they haven't said that you're not allowed to accept them as a, as a form of payment. So, I mean, if a local coffee shop wishes to accept crypto for their coffee or for any, any product or service whatsoever, it's within their right to do so. It's just, if anything goes wrong, um, the bank, sorry, the, the Irish Central Bank is not going to guarantee or back anything. So that's kind of, I mean, that's pretty much the only thing they said. Yep, that's literally it. The, the central bank gave a warning and they said, careful lads, and that's pretty much the extent of it. And then you, you mentioned central bank, so this is a good way to just wrap things up. Because, you know, we've talked about the macro-governmental stance here. This is what the governments of these countries. What about the central banks? So a lot of, you know, uh, federations like the, the US Fed or the EU, you know, have started coming up with these things called CBDCs. So a CBDC is a central bank digital currency. So you think, oh, okay, the central bank of these countries and then these these unions as such think that crypto's great. It's not quite crypto. James, do you want to talk us through a little bit of what a CBDC is, why maybe it's not crypto, or how is it not crypto if it's a digital currency? And maybe why is it good? Is it bad? What's the stance? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really obvious things is that it's not limited in supply. So... Um, if you remove the central bank backing, theoretically, it shouldn't have any value because without that, I mean, there's, there's no value associated with scarcity. Um, so once you move that, once you remove that backing, theoretically, it should collapse. Now, obviously, this isn't in practice. This hasn't really happened. I mean, we can. I know we did a podcast on Tether. The supply of Tether is not um, is not capped. They're issuing literally billions of dollars worth of it every year yet the value is staying at a dollar. But I mean, down the line, I mean, if you listen to the podcast, you know how, you know you know where we stand on Tether. It is almost like an accident waiting to happen. I can see CBDCs having a bit more credibility than Tether, but in terms of getting engagement within the crypto community, I don't think it's going to work. I think we're going to, I think people are going to rather just use like um, USDC, you know, it's a great project, great company. They've been ordered by Visa, works out great. I mean, if you use a Visa card, you're using crypto. Your your set your transfer is settling in crypto. Yeah. So the ECB or the European Central Bank have actually issued CBDCs or have come out and said that their intention is to work with them. And you know they made very clear in this report. I read it. It was twenty pages long. It's very boring. But they said that this is not cryptocurrency, and they even give a warning saying it's a volatile asset class. Don't touch it. Basically, right. But you know the CBDCs have actually got a really bad reputation within the crypto community. Not because they're not capped, because and not because they only have value because they're backed by central banks. Because of course, traditional fiat currency only has value because the central banks and the governments say that they have value. I think it'll it'll also be interesting to see. You know, when you open up an account that is used to engage in CBDCs, are you going to have to verify documents? You're going to have to upload personal ID addresses. You know, that directly takes away from what crypto is. Crisp, oh, sorry, crypto. I mean, many th- many see privacy. I see transparency, and you know. If I was to send a hundred euro to Sam on the crypto, sorry, in crypto, let's say I was to send it on Ethereum, you could just log into Etherscan, put in my address, you'd see exactly how how much sent, where it sent, when it sent, how much like how much um, gas I paid for us. You know, I don't think we're going to see that with CBDCs whatsoever. I think we're going to be seeing a humongous amount of privacy. Or I also think that since it's controlled by a central authority, which is inherently anti-crypto, it goes against what everything the community stands for. But we could see that the CBDCs could be built in such a way that the infrastructure allows for the creators or the central banks to actually monitor and survey everything. 
So they will have more control than traditional currency. You know, it's hard, it's, you know, it's hard to track cash, but it's doable, right? But digital transactions happen all the time through cards. You know, it's, you know, the money printing machine isn't so much just printing actual money. It's more they press a button and money is deposited into various countries' accounts and all these. It's obviously on a massive scale. But, you know, the ability to, for big government to track everything is a big concern for a lot. And, and we've discussed earlier, maybe the more libertarian side of things, but I think it is a legitimate concern. They're also going to struggle with the um, the open source aspect of crypto as well. I mean, the the beauty of crypto is that every every kind of project is open source. They publish their code on GitHub. So if there is a security issue, it gets fixed instantly because there's so many active developers, especially on these big blockchains like Ethereum. I mean, I'm not even sure if um, any of the listeners heard, but um, there was actually a bug found in the uh, the first version of Ethereum, Ethereum 1.0, and it was, I'm pretty sure it was fixed almost instantly on GitHub because the developers are so active, the passion is so high. Yet I can see, you know, the central bank struggling to keep up with the security of of kind of the decentralized um, versions of what they're tr- what they're trying to create. Yeah, and I think then that's a good way to just kind of finish things off. You know, CBDCs, be careful, right? But I think you'll be hearing a lot more about them, not just from us, but from the EU, maybe that China are creating their own as well. You probably hear a lot about that. But I think that's kind of a good way to kind of wrap things up, James. I think we've kind of covered everything that we wanted to. We kind of talked about the left-right perspectives of crypto as a whole, you know, the, the macro-governmental perspective, of course, and then everyone's favorite Marxist perspective of, uh, of crypto. Um, so I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'm sorry if uh, you've heard too much of my voice in this one. Uh, this is just a particular area of interest for me. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks. Yeah, see you guys next week. Thank you guys for tuning into episode eight of the Gigabyte Weekly. We just want to thank you for continuing to support us, for continuing to listen to us, you know, for checking out our website. It's really great to see the community continue to grow. And I know I say that a lot in my outros, but it really is just so amazing to watch this podcast grow and to see our kind of metrics within the company grow as well. And if you're interested in what you heard, we have published a previous blog where we talked about regulations and crypto. We specifically went and talked about the whole idea of how crypto nearly destroyed the infrastructure um, fund in America. And yeah, you know, you can find that on our website, gigabyteinvestment.com. We post these on our Twitter at Gigabyte Invest, also on our LinkedIn, Gigabyte Investment. And yeah, you know, thank you so much and we'll catch you next week.